So Leviticus 15, we're looking at today. I'm not going to lie to you, it's a bit uncomfortable, but we will see why by the end of the sermon, I promise. Okay? Okay, here we go, buckle up. I'm going to pray now, actually, because I just want to jump into the sermon straight after the Bible reading. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your, your Word, the Bible. Lord, um, it is all inspired by you and is all given to us for uh, our good and our instruction, our um, maturation, that we might glorify you. And um, Lord, we ask... You help us to uh, understand this passage, to, um, to listen well. Help us to apply it to our lives so that we might glorify you all the more as a result of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any man has an unusual bodily discharge, such a discharge is unclean. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it will make him unclean. This is how his discharge will bring about uncleanness. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean, and anything he sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they'll be unclean till evening. Whoever sits on anything that the man with a discharge sat on must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they'll be unclean till evening. Whoever touches the man who has a discharge must wash their clothes and bathe with water, they will be unclean till evening. If the man with the discharge spits on anyone who is clean, they must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They will be unclean till evening. Everything the man sits on when riding will be unclean, and whoever touches any of the things that were under him will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up those things must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and you guessed it, they will be unclean till evening. Anyone the man with a discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They will be unclean till evening. A clay pot that the man touches must be broken and any wooden article is to be rinsed with water. <coughs> when a man is cleansed from his discharge, he is to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water and he'll be clean. On the eighth day, he must take two doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance to the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them, the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he'll make atonement before the Lord for the man because of his discharge. When a man has an omission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water. He'll be unclean till evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water. He'll be unclean till evening. When a man has sexual relations with a woman and there is an omission of semen... Both of them must bathe with water and they'll be unclean till evening. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They'll be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They'll be unclean till evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on, anyone who touches it will be unclean till evening. If a man has sexual relations with her and her monthly flow touches him, he will be unclean for seven days. Any bed he lies on will be unclean. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, 
other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she'll be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they'll be unclean till evening. When she's cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days and after that she'll be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. These are the regulations for a man with a discharge, for anyone made unclean by an omission of semen, for a woman in her monthly period, for a man or a woman with a discharge, and for a man who has sexual relations with a woman who is ceremonially unclean. There you have it. Well, that's an uncomfortable part of God's word, isn't it? God, speaking to his people via both Moses and Aaron, speaks of the discharge of bodily fluids, including semen and menstrual blood. Well, we dealt with some icky stuff last week when we looked at skin rashes and things. And last week we talked about mold. We learned that God wants the Israelites to be keenly aware of sinfulness and holiness, of what makes them clean and unclean, and of how... It is they become holy and stay holy, set apart for the Lord. Holy means set apart for God's good plans and purposes. They need to know what makes them unclean by what goes in or what goes on or what comes out. And here at the end of the section, chapters 11 to 15, we get a whole big section that narrows in on the most personal ways that men and women are to be keenly aware of sinfulness and holiness. It's right that we view such topics as very personal. It's a bit sad, actually, that we view these topics as personally as we do. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and it says they had no shame which means they did not have any reason to feel vulnerable before one another. Nakedness doesn't just mean no clothes on, it means that there's nothing to hide relationally and emotionally. There's no vulnerability whatsoever between Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. But on this side of the fall, on this side of the first time when man rebelled against God, it makes these things that we're talking about deeply personal and we feel very vulnerable talking about these things, don't we? We feel uncomfortable talking about these things. Because of the fall, it's right that we feel the need to cover ourselves both physically and emotionally before one another, to protect the deep and personal parts of our personhood physically and emotionally. God in his mercy clothed Adam and Eve and in his mercy he set them out of the garden and out of his presence lest they be killed 
because of his holiness and their new unholiness. There are parts of us that we're happy to expose to one another here at church, in public, and there's parts of ourselves we're not happy to expose, both physically and emotionally. That's why if Jane, the boss, goes up to one of her employees, Tom, and says, G'day, Tom, how was your weekend? That's a nice thing to do. And Tom says, great, we took the kids to the beach, we had some fish and chips, it was great, how was your weekend? That's nice. Tom's happy to expose to his boss that he took the kids to the beach on the weekend and had some fish and chips. Happy. But if Jane says to Tom, G'day, Tom, did you have an omission of semen over the weekend that may have touched your wife or your clothes? Tom doesn't feel so comfortable anymore. And Tom thinks to himself, do I take legal action against my boss here or is she just psychotic and I need to recommend a good psychiatrist? Because Tom's not happy to expose that part of himself to her and we all know that, don't we? (laughs) Naturally. We all get it. If you visualise yourself with kind of concentric circles of comfort level around you, how was your weekend is kind of right out there. We're okay with that. We're okay to kind of talk about the fish and chips and the beach. That's cool. What's going on with your bodily emissions? That's close. That's right up in here. And we have a right vulnerability about that. And we're not going to talk about that uh, with anyone. In Leviticus 15, God, in getting to help his people appreciate the character of sin, goes into our inner circles. God goes into our inner circles and the inner circles of the Israelites to help them appreciate their sin and vulnerability. That's why he's doing it. That's why we've got this whole chapter that's very uncomfortable for us today, and that's why it's uncomfortable for us today. I hope that makes sense as we kind of plow on through this uncomfortableness together. He gets up right right up close and personal. He addresses us in the areas where, as men and women, we are rightly sensitive And the obvious and vital question to ask is, why? 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 Why does God want to teach us about sin in relation to holiness using semen and menstrual blood? It's a good question, and we're going to answer it today, I promise. The the answer is one of the most wonderful truths of the Bible that you could possibly hear. As I was preparing this sermon, I was asking myself, why did Ben, who did the breakup for this sermon series, set aside a whole sermon just for this chapter? But I get it now. So make your peace with the fact we're dealing with some icky stuff now and we'll dive in to this chapter. In point one, we begin with the way God symbolises uncleanness in men. So it's a men's turn first. Usually it's ladies first, but this time men are taking the bullet first. So here we go. Uncleanness from men is verses 1 to 18. The God who created the universe views men and women as being different. They are equally human and therefore equally equal in his image, yet to be male is to be vastly different from being female and vice versa. Hence, when God comes now to teach them about the true character of sin at a deeply personal lesson, he gives them the same lesson, but he gives it to them in different ways. And the lesson is this. Sin goes hand in hand with death. We learnt that last week. Skin diseases represent death. They're a result of the fall. When the blood comes out, that's usually bad. It's a, it's a, um, 
a reminder of the fall. Death represents separation from God. Sin affects others. And God provides priestly sacrificial atonement for sin. This is the big idea of what God's trying to teach his people in the most personal way through this chapter. To give the teaching to men, he uses unusual bodily discharges. Verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites, say to them, When any man has an unusual bodily discharge, such a discharge is unclean. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it'll make, it'll make him unclean. This can include a whole bunch of things, such as vomit, pus, weeping wounds and boils, kidney stones, bloody urine or semen, etc. Like death, such things usually look bad, feel bad and smell bad. So they're used to remind men of the overall cause of death, namely sin. Sin and death are out of place in God's good creation. There's nothing natural about death. Hence, God's using unusual bodily discharges in men as an illustration for sin and death. But God also illustrates a tendency of human sin to affect others. Sin affects others as well as me. Verse 3, this is how his discharge will bring about uncleanness. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean. Anything he sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed must wash their clothes, bathe with water, they'll be unclean. Any, whoever sits on anything, the man with a discharge sat on, must wash their clothes, bathe with water, they'll be unclean. Till evening, sin affects others. It makes others unclean as well, potentially. So clearly the sin of the man affects others through contaminated objects. So he can contaminate objects which contaminates other people and he himself can be the transmitter of uncleanness as well. Verse 7, whoever touches the man has a discharge, must wash their clothes, bathe with water, they'll be unclean. If the man with a discharge spits on anyone who is clean, I take it that's unintentional, like when you're excitedly telling a story and a bit of spit flies out of your mouth and lands on the other person. Praise God for the 1.5 metre rule. It's a bit harder to spit on each other these days. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, they'll be unclean till evening. So the uncleanness of the man affects others both through what he touches and through his own body. To make it really awkward, there's extra attention given to the uncleanness of his nether regions. Verse 9, everything the man sits on when riding will be unclean. Whoever touches any of the things that were under him will be unclean. Whoever picks up those things must wash their clothes, bathe the water, they'll be unclean till evening. And finally, so as to highlight the ease with which the man's sin can affect others, God instructs men to take a measure of social responsibility. Verse 11. Anyone the man with a discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They'll be unclean till evening. A clay pot the man touches must be broken, a wooden article rinsed. The symbolism by which the man is to learn the character of sin is pretty obvious. Sin goes hand in hand with death, hence separation from God. The things that are making the man unclean are things that are unusual, just as sin and death are out of place. And the ceremonial uncleanness they produce means you can't approach the Lord in his dwelling place at the tabernacle until you're clean again. Such things are extremely likely to affect others. The way you and I sin in our thoughts, words and deeds is never truly private. My sin affects you 
and your sin affects me. That's why the Bible urges us to confess our sins to one another and to meet regularly with one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And of course, in the next few verses, the man is to learn that God, who is both holy and also full of grace, provides the means by which the man can have his sins washed and be reconciled to God and neighbour. Verse 13, when a man's cleansed from his discharge, he's to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe himself with fresh water, he'll be clean. On the eighth day, he must take two doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he'll make atonement before the Lord for the man because of his discharge. So the thing being symbolised, the thing that's out of place and associated with death is, of course, sin. This is what the, that is what the burnt offering and the sin offering are designed to atone for. That's the thing that keeps us out of the joyful, life-giving presence of God. Sin keeps us out of the joyful, life-giving presence of God and God makes a way for them to enter back in. Men... In our natural condition, sin is hardwired to the very core of our being. It separates us from God. It affects those around us. In ancient Israel, a powerful illustration of this reality was bodily discharges. When a man has an emission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water and he'll be unclean till evening. The emission of semen that's being talked about here, I think, is one that goes anywhere except the place where it can become life. That's why, and, um, that's why it says in verse 17, any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water and will be unclean till evening. Interesting, though, is the reality that even in the normal and natural act of sexual intercourse between husband and wife, both are rendered unclean. Look at verse 18. When a man has sexual relations with a woman and there's an omission of semen, both of them must bathe with water and they'll be unclean till evening. There's three very interesting things to note from this verse. Firstly, notice the equality between men and women on display. Both are made unclean till evening. Sexual intercourse makes both partners ritually unclean. And the cleansing rites after abnormal discharges are the same for both men and women. Secondly, anthropologists point out that in many traditional societies, menstrual restrictions provided a measure of social relief and privacy for women women during the time of their period. And thirdly, while it would be wrong to think that the laws indicate It would be wrong to think these laws indicate that sexuality, sexual intercourse, or the physical organs related to it were somehow considered sinful. It would be wrong to think they're sinful. There is restraints in place on sexual activity. So, sex is not sinful. Sex is good. Um, In the confines of marriage. You're going to have to open that door, Trevor. (laughs) Push the button on the left, yep. Open the door, push on the panic bar. Open them right out, all the way till they stay open. Thank you. It's cold, right? Um, 
We all needed a little breather, didn't we? <laughs> so, Jeremy, you got another question? Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. Yeah, so third, third point. Um, sex in the confines of marriage between husband and wife is good, the Bible says. In any culture, there are some things which are good and right in themselves, but inappropriate and offensive in some contexts. For example, in our culture... Wearing casual clothes is fine, but at a wedding is not cool. You're supposed to dress up. Um, uh, wearing bright colours is fine, but generally not at a funeral, though there was a funeral recently, Penny's funeral, where she requested that everybody wear bright colours, which is really cool. I thought it was really cool. So generally you wear dark colours at a funeral. There's, there's these cultural things in place where it's okay to do some things sometimes, but sometimes it's not. So in Israel, um, sexual intercourse in marriage was good. It was good. And it was wholesome, but it was out of place during war. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, if you want to have a look later, um, they abstained from sexual relations during war. Um, in Exodus 19, there's times when um, you abstain from sexual relations for the purpose of worship at the temple. Now, one of the most significant um, practical effects of 1518 as Jeremy just alluded to, was it made it impossible for sexual rights and sacred prostitution to be a part of the worship of Yahweh as it was in other pagan cultures. In some pagan cultures, they had um, temple, temples with prostitutes in them because sex was seen to be some kind of um, spiritual, spiritual act in a, in a really unhelpful way. Um, there was fertility cults, in which intercourse was given a sacred ritual significance. This can't happen in Israel. This is excluded because of these um, rules that are in place about uncleanness because of sex. So prostitutes, because of their more or less permanent state of uncleanness, could never legitimately function in worship. They could never worship because they're permanently unclean. So it wipes out the concept of prostitution from God's holy people, Israel. All right, that was men. Your turn, ladies. Uncleanness from women, verse 19. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. In an ancient culture, it wouldn't be hard to work out that during the fertile time of her life, menstrual blood is discharged roughly once a month, but that it stops happening when there's life inside her. That by itself makes the blood a potent symbol of death. When the life's there, the blood stops. When the life's not there, the blood flows once a month. Hence, God tells a woman to ascribe ceremonially unclean, ceremonial uncleanness to her monthly period. Not sin, sinfulness, but ceremonial uncleanness. And in the very same way that the man was to learn that his sin affects others, so the woman learns that her sin, the flow of blood, reminds her of sin and reminds her of death and it reminds her that sin can affect others by the rules that were in place when the blood 
was flowing. Verse 20, anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, anything she sits on will be unclean, anyone who touches her bed will be unclean, they must wash their clothes and bathe with water, they'll be unclean till evening. Verse 24, if a man has sexual relations with her and her monthly flow touches him, he'll be unclean for seven days, any bed he lies on will be unclean. So again, just as the man would learn in a very personal way that sin and death go hand in hand, and that sin affects others, so the woman, in an intensely personal way, gets exactly the same lesson. I want to reiterate what we talked about last week. We're dealing with ceremonial uncleanness, not literal uncleanness. A woman is not somehow morally corrupt because she has her menstrual bleeding. God himself put together the female reproductive system and he did a wonderful job of it. And the same thing goes for men. Men are not inherently base and animalistic because they have a build-up of semen. God created the male reproductive system too and he did a wonderful job of it. The combination of both voluntary and involuntary semen emissions teaches a male about sexual control and therefore sexual responsibility, particularly when he's young. If done in an other person-centred and God-honouring way, this will prove to be beneficial to his potential spouse. Now, for the woman's part, by and large, her abnormal discharges are not used by God to impress upon her the nature of sin, the regular monthly period does that enough. So abnormal discharges aren't talked about here, just the normal discharge. But there's one abnormal discharge that God uses in addition to her monthly period. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she'll be unclean as long as she has the discharge just as in the days of her period. Then in the following verses, we get the same conditions for transmitting uncleanness as apply to the woman during her regular bleeding. So for the man, it's spilled semen plus any kind of unusual discharge. For the woman, it's menstrual blood plus only one kind of unusual discharge, which is bleeding beyond her period. For both the man and the woman, it's the nature of sin that's being driven home in a personal and confronting manner. Now, I won't read it, but the woman's purification process is just the same as the man's washing a burnt offering and a sin offering. Then we get the concluding summary in verse 32. These are the regulations for a man with a discharge, for anyone made unclean by an omission of semen, for a woman in her monthly period, for a man or a woman with a discharge, and for a man who has sexual relations with a woman who is ceremonially unclean. And then we all take a big sigh of relief, because that section is the Bible. Bible is over, probably for around 10 years. We'll get back to it again sometime in 2030. And we're on to the Day of Atonement next week with Ben. And Lara and I won't be here, because we're on holidays. That's like the high point of the Pentateuch, a high point of the first five chapters of the Bible and I've timed my holiday perfectly with it and I'm a bit disappointed about that I've got to say. Next week really is the high point of Leviticus, it's the high point of the Pentateuch, the first five chapters. It's Don't miss out on the Day of Atonement next week. All right, third and final point, kind of bringing this together and what it means for us today. Our initial question was why, why does God use such up-close and personal stuff 
to teach men and women about the character of human sin in relation to his holiness. Why? Well, there's good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news, and I'll give you the good news. The bad news is that God is teaching us that when estranged from him, our sin resides incurably in our inmost vulnerable being. All sinners are inherently deeply insecure. According to God in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, the entire life of a sinner is lived in slavery to the fear of death. All people, whether they admit it or not, are afraid to die. But we try to ignore that insecurity or we squash it down in denial. But that doesn't make the truth any less true. We are terrified of death in our inmost being, and rightly so. It's unnatural. Deep in the core of your person, deep within that close circle, the inner circle, in the part of your being that physically um, you'd liken to something as personal as your semen emissions or your menstrual blood, there is something in that personal space that's fundamentally opposed to God in His holiness. You're vulnerable enough if somebody inappropriately asks you about the discharges you're having. How much more vulnerable is the sinner when God appropriately examines the discharges of their heart, what's coming out of your heart? For those estranged from God, sin resides in the deep, vulnerable core of your being, in your soul. And that's where God, in His holiness, will deliver justice. But the really good news God is teaching us here is that as deep as our sin is, if He makes sacrificial atonement for us, then that's also how deep our holiness becomes. As deep as our sin is, when God atones for it, that's how deep our holiness becomes as well. The sin offering and burnt offering couldn't clean the sinner in their inmost parts. But they demonstrated God's willingness to provide a way of doing it, which of course he achieved when Jesus hung on the cross and died for sin. Jesus demonstrated that he came to give not only ceremonial cleanness, but actual holiness. We are cleansed to the core. He would deal not only with the symbol of death, the diseases and the blood, but also death itself. Jesus conquered even death itself. Let me remind you of a story in the Gospels which illustrates this absolutely beautifully. In Mark chapter 5, there's a synagogue leader named Jairus and his daughter is at the point of death and so he goes to Jesus for help. He begs him to come and lay his hands on his daughter so that his daughter might be saved. I have two daughters. I can imagine his grief and horror as his daughter lays dying. Now, as Jesus went on his way, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, according to Leviticus 15, that woman had been ceremonially unclean, unable to approach God and unable to mix in society for 12 years because of her bleeding. Anyone she touches becomes unclean. 
So if she touches somebody in secret, that's really bad. But here she is in the crowd trying to get to Jesus. She's very brave and she's very desperate. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And she must have been terrified. She thinks she's about to get publicly disgraced and humiliated because he knows what she's done in a crowd. But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. It's awesome that she came to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not okay with people trying to trust in him yet keep him at arm's length and have a so-called private faith. He's not okay in a sense, with her just touching him and and then running off. That's not saving faith, to stay at home and say, I'm a Christian. Jesus wants us to come to him and he wants us to gather with one another. Now, the women knew it and she had to fess up publicly. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. That's a picture of great vulnerability. But Jesus honoured her in the sight of the crowd. He referred to her with a real term of endearment. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. But that's not the end of it. Jesus could not... Jesus could give not only ceremonial cleanness, he gave her ceremonial cleanness... But he could even fix the problem that her bleeding symbolised, which was death, which is the very next thing that he did. He continues on to Jairus' house, and in Jairus' horror and worst nightmare, his daughter has died. But Jesus took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. And for the first time in his gospel, Mark tells us someone's age. The girl was 12 years old. That poor woman had been bleeding for as long as this girl had been alive. And just as we're told that Jesus healed the woman inside her body, so he healed the totality of the being of this girl, right to her very core. Who was just around the age, on average, the very deep and personal sign of the impurity of death was about to begin for her. Jesus' life-giving work penetrates the deepest, most vulnerable and sensitive parts of our being. His healing is not just skin deep. It penetrates bone and marrow. It penetrates our uncomfortable consciences. That core private part of your being is where Jesus would later send his Holy Spirit through faith in him to dwell in you. 
outside of Christ, our inmost vulnerable being is incurably sinful. But in Christ, our inmost vulnerable being is perfectly, completely and unchangeably holy, set apart for him. Every part of you set apart for Christ. This means that Christians and only Christians have complete spiritual confidence. We often fail to realise it, we often fail to feel it, but Christians don't have any spiritual insecurity. The perfect love of Jesus really does drive out all fear. The Apostle Paul teaches Christians to flee from sexual sins because unlike any other sin, sexual sins happen in that inner circle in that very personal core space of our being. And the same apostle, even in the face of deep sexual sin, would speak in extreme terms of the spiritual security Christians enjoy in our inmost being. He says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This means as Christians we don't need to feel spiritually vulnerable with one another. I know that for people who've had significant relational damage in the past, it's really easy to be a private person or a guarded person. If you've been hurt in the past, it's hard to open yourself up again to people, isn't it? It's understandable that it takes considerably more effort for you to make yourself even just a little bit vulnerable in the face of another person, even brothers and sisters in Christ. But it can be done, and it should be done in your time, at your pace, but it should be done, and it can be done. Despite the damage done to you, and despite your own sinfulness, at the very core of your inmost being, you've been made holy, set apart for God, God's treasured possession. You've been made acceptable to God and useful for his plans and purposes. That's who you are now, acceptable to God. If you're not yet a Christian, Jesus cares very much about your vulnerable inmost being too. He wants in on that inner circle and he knows it takes courage for people to repent and put their faith in him. It takes courage. Often the reason people have not yet committed their lives to Jesus is because they're afraid of what others might think. That was certainly true for me as a young man. I was flabbergasted about how confident Christian people were with one another and even in public. I was not like that. I was terrified of what other people thought. I was certainly scared of what my friends who weren't Christians were going to think. When I told them I was one, I worked at a newspaper factory. It wasn't easy. 
being a Christian person in the factory. It was scary to trust in Jesus and to make that public. But with God's strength and God's confidence in time, I did. Jesus says to you, if you're not yet put your trust in Jesus, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So confess your sin and put your trust in Jesus before it's too late and see what genuine freedom looks like and feels like. See what life to the full actually is as you are cleansed to your core, confident to your core, and now living for Christ. I'm going to spend some time praying for him, praying to God. And I've left all my prayer notes over there, so I'll go get them. John's going to get them. Um, And I'll take a couple of questions from this. If you've got any kind of burning questions, I'll take those. You can always click on the I'm here today button, ask me questions that way, or pop me an email as well if you'd like. Let's pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your love to us. We are sinful to our core, rebellious to our core. And we know without your love and your grace, we would be rebels and facing judgment. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, which not only saves us, but cleanses us, makes us pure, and makes us holy to our very core, to our inmost being. Lord, we thank you that you're willing to approach us. We know that you know everything about us. There are things that we hide from everyone, but you know them all, and you love us still. And you sent Jesus to die in our place, even though you know all of it. And we thank you, Lord, so much for him. And pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to live for you. And Lord, we pray for those who've not yet put their trust in you, that you will give them the courage to repent of their sin, to trust in Jesus, to know cleansing and holiness, to know life to the full in you. Uh, Lord, we want to pray for us as a church. It will be a blessing to our community. Lord, we pray firstly that you'll use, use our church to be a blessing to this school. We pray for uh, SRE. Please help myself and Kate and Andrew to teach your word to the kids. Lord, we uh, thank you um, that we have this opportunity to teach the Bible to kids here and we pray and ask that you might raise up some more people to help us teach the kids of this school. Lord, we pray that we'll be a blessing where we live, to our neighbours, to the communities in which we live and work, to sporting communities and other community groups that we're a part of. Lord, help us to be servants of others. Help us to be courageous in sharing the gospel with our neighbours, with people who we know who don't yet trust in Jesus. 
Lord, we continue to pray for our governments at federal and state level. Please bless them with wisdom. Please bless them with good communication. Lord, we pray they act in the interests of every Aussie, not just some. Give them wisdom to make impossible decisions amidst this global pandemic. Lord, we pray you protect our economy and help the government to make good decisions with our economy in mind as well. Lord, we pray for countries who are really struggling as a result of the coronavirus, whose economies are broken, for whom the spread of coronavirus is rife. Lord, we ask that you do your good work in those countries as well. Lord, we pray for the McCorkendales. And Lord, we give you thanks for the advancing technology these past 15 years. That means Sam has now got hearing aids and can hear better. And we pray and ask that that will really boost her ability to learn Kamai and to uh, serve in different groups when they get back to Cambodia. Thank you for CMS, who was able to cover the cost of her hearing aids. Lord, we pray for the school in Cambodia um, that has not yet returned to face-to-face -face learning, which is a real struggle uh, for the kids and for the families. We pray that restrictions will be lifted soon and they can return to face-to-face -face learning in Cambodia. And Lord, we pray for the students, that they'll be able to recall what they've learned this year, the students of the Bible School, not just for their exams, but for a life of ministry shaped by your word. Lord, we pray the Bible School can return to face-to-face -face, face -face classes again soon as well, when it starts up again in November. And Lord, we pray that you speed McCorkendale's return to Cambodia early in the new year so Craig can get to teaching again over there. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.